Now, if you were here last week, you would have heard the first of our two-part series on humility, and we said, and maybe you remember this, that humility is the root of all the graces of the Christian life. Uh, In other words, uh, all the good fruits of Christian living, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, those kind of things, have their roots in the soil of humility. So much so that our friend, who we considered a few times last week, whose name was... Andy Murray, brilliant. Uh, Andy Murray, not the tennis player, who actually I think probably does lack humility, Andy Murray, the tennis player. But anyway, Andy Murray, the guy who wrote the book called Humility uh, at the end of the uh, 19th century, uh, said that the lack of humility is a sufficient explanation for every defect and failure. Now that was last week. Now this week, what I want to try and get us to do is to move on a little bit and define humility, exactly what is Christian humility, Bible humility, and how does that relate to our sinfulness and our experience of the work of Christ in salvation. So let's start with defining Christian humility. What is Christian humility? I think that's probably slightly harder than it might first appear. Uh, You might be able to look it up in a dictionary and get a decent definition, but what does it actually mean to be humble as a Christian? Well, let me suggest, and this is just stating the obvious, okay? The opposite of humility is arrogance. Oh, yeah, well, that wasn't the word on my... uh, uh, Pride. But I think arrogance is the same thing, isn't it? Um, Yeah, so it's the opposite of pride, okay? So humility is the opposite of pride, which means that if humility is the root, the soil of all the graces of the Christian life, then you can say, can't you, that pride or arrogance is the root and the source of sin. What is sin? Well, fundamentally, sin is selfishness, isn't it? And wickedness. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden are not just breaking a law that God has given them, although they are breaking a law that God has given them. They are reaching out after and grasping for God's status for themselves. They are eating the fruit under the belief that it will make them like God, knowing good and evil. And it's pride that's in the driving seat. So while God's law says God is God and we are not, pride says I can be my own God. I can go my own way. I can do my own thing. And that's the lie of sin because it's not true. And humility is the truth to that lie. It's the opposite of it. So humility is the opposite of pride. It's also, though, the twin of faith. Faith is the action of somebody who has emptied themselves, yeah, who is not proud, but they are humble, they are self-empty, they, they, uh, they trust themselves to somebody else, they put their faith in somebody else because they have emptied themselves of their own trust, of their own pride. Faith, if you like, is humility in action. Not so much to say that every person who you think of as humble must be a Christian. There is a kind of humility in the world by God's common grace, isn't there? But there is a uniquely Christian kind of humility which sees not just its human weakness in a general sense, but sees that it is sinfully weak and in need of a salvation that it cannot earn on its own or grasp after for itself. It recognizes its own emptiness and throws its confidence on Christ for salvation. So humility is the opposite of pride. It's the twin of faith because it is completely self-empty. I have nothing to offer. Now, I want to try and build on that by picking up some passages of the Bible and looking at them together, and that's why... I asked you to grab a Bible. And in an attempt 
to keep this engaging and interesting, I am going to summarize these things in three sentences that I think it takes great humility to say. Okay, so these sentences capture something about what humility is, and they are hard things to say unless you are, well, they're hard things to mean and say if you mean them um, without humility. So the first one is this. It's not just that I have sinned, it's that I am a sinner. Uh, turn with me to uh, these references. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 9 and 10. It's on page 961 in the church Bible. Paul writes this. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Here, Paul is really clear, isn't he, about his status. I am the least. I am unworthy, he says. The least of the apostles. Why? Well, because I persecuted the church. I rounded them up and handed them over to the authorities for being put in prison and even executed. And while he's, he's not still doing that, is he? He is not still rounding up Christians and putting them in prison and getting them executed. Yet still he identifies himself as the least of the apostles. Because somehow what he has done is a reflection of who he is. Uh, it's a similar idea if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. So over a few pages, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, 977. This is where Paul talks about his ministry like this. Very, very similar. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You might, you might just read that and just think, oh, that's just hyperbole, isn't it? Paul's just overstating things for effect, but I don't think he is. As far as Paul is concerned, his identity, his understanding is that he is the very least of all the saints. He is the most undeserving. And again, Paul isn't referencing any particular kind of action or sin, yet still he has this status in mind that he is the very least, the least who is still given this great task of preaching. And um, maybe it's all those things that come together in 1 Timothy. So keep going forward in your Bible. If you get into Hebrews, you've gone too far. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It's on page 991. This is what Paul says there. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I think Paul is capturing, isn't he, this truth about humility as he calls himself the foremost sinner. He's foremost, so his ministry in some senses is, you know, if Paul can be saved, then anybody can be saved. Yeah, the, if the foremost sinner can be saved then in effect Jesus is capable of saving anybody, isn't he? Now, again, it's interesting, isn't it? Paul isn't confessing any particular individual sin. He's saying not that he is the foremost sinner because of a particular struggle or weakness or bad habit or behavior that he has now. Not that he 
isn't guilty of ongoing sin. That's not the point, is it? But rather, Paul recognizes himself, in himself, I am a sinner. Now, of course, that's not the only thing that's true of Paul, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But still, somehow, in his Christian life, as he lives the Christian life, as he grows in the Christian life, he doesn't shake this understanding that in himself, left to himself, he is a rebel against God, undeserving of salvation. Someone in whom nothing worthy of saving could be found. Now notice with me, just, or just think about it with me, that that is very different to admitting that you've done something wrong. Being able to say that you got something wrong or that you were wrong, all of that is particularly important, isn't it? Especially in relationships which depend on that flow of confession and forgiveness, don't they? Everyone should be willing to admit that they did things wrong. But that's not this, is it? This is more than that. This is a humility that's not rooted so much in the guilt for a particular sin. It's not that, is it? It's not even that Paul has a a shaky understanding of God's forgiveness of his sin. Of course, he knows that God forgives his sin. That's what he's saying, isn't it, in this passage in 1 Timothy. Rather, the point is that for Paul to properly appreciate the grace of God, his saving love, he has to also keep on remembering that not only did he do nothing to deserve it, but he did the very opposite. He's a sinner. He was dead in his sin when Christ saved me. Let me try and illustrate this. It's really important that we grasp this, so I'm going to try and illustrate it, and I'm not sure whether this will work, but we'll have a go. Uh, My granddad was a guy called Thomas Jackson Palfreman. My family also had the Thomas, 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 Thomas thing going on, but my father decided that he would kick it into touch. Anyway, there you go. Thomas Jackson Palfreman went down the pit aged 14. So in 1926, along with a lot of his friends, he uh, started his career crawling underground, digging coal in the dark. And to the day my granddad died, he carried around in his pocket his very first wage slip for that job, which was not very much money. I can't even remember what it was. At that age, I was just bored by his stories, okay? But I wish now that I'd listened. Anyway, but he, he carried it around because he didn't want to forget where he had come from in life. That age 14, he was crawling in the dark, digging coal. Now, it's a dumb example, really, because it's all about his works, isn't it? But this is, in a similar sense, Paul does not want to forget that right at the heart of who he is is that he is an undeserving sinner. And it's never far away from Paul's thoughts. In fact, you could argue that as he grows as a Christian, this sense about himself also grows. That these origins, this starting place, makes the grace of God all the more amazing to Paul as he considers it. If you like, Paul is growing down in humility that he might grow up in grace as he understands the greatness of God in saving him. And if you think about it, this is what it will be like in eternity. In eternity, in glory, we will stop sinning That is a glorious truth, isn't it? Uh, Aren't we looking forward to that? But in eternity, we will continue to appreciate the love of God because we remember that we were undeserving sinners. And we will look at the lamb who looks as if he has been slain, carrying the marks of the cross and go, he did that to save me because there was nothing else that could be done to save me. And so we, in eternity, will be humble sinless sinners enjoying God's undeserving grace for all eternity so that's the first point I'm a sinner not just that I do things wrong 
but that I'm a sinner. Second thing that a humble person says, it's not that I can't do anything, I just can't do what really matters. It's not that I can't do anything, I just can't do what really matters. Let me try and explain this to you. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 3 again, and to Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. So go back to Ephesians 3, page 977, and let's look at the prayer at the end in verse 14. Let me read this to you. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, do you see this here? It's not possible, says Paul, without divine help for the Ephesian church to grasp the depth of God's love for them. In fact, it would be right to say that the Ephesians are incapable of grasping what needs to be grasped if their Christian lives are to be lived with joy and fullness. Let me say that again. It is impossible For the Ephesians, they are incapable of grasping what needs to be grasped if they're to live their Christian lives with joy and fruitfulness. They just can't do it. So Paul prays that God, by his Spirit, might do in them and for them what they cannot do for themselves, doing it far more abundantly than anything they previously expected. Think about it like this. Uh, Imagine for a moment, what is it that you really, really want in life? What do you really, really want? If you want a good job, for example, what are you going to do if you want a good job? Well, you could work hard. You could study hard. You might want to get a good night's sleep before your mocks start tomorrow. Um, That would be a good idea. Uh, What if you want a a good marriage? What will you do? Well, you spend time together. You work hard at communicating well together. What about if you want to get better at the job that you have? You might read some books, you might ask for help, you might go on courses, all those things might help. You might tool up and get better. But listen, here's the thing. If you want to be a better Christian, if you want to be a more joyful Christian, there's nothing that you can do about that other than this. You know, You know, for sure you can go, well, okay, if I want to be a better Christian, I'm going to get to know my Bible better. Getting to know your Bible better is a brilliant thing to do. But it is possible to know your Bible really well and still be a very, very immature Christian, or not even a Christian. On its own, that does not work. Paul's prayer here shows you something really, really humbling about the Christian life. That is, if you want to grow as a Christian and grasp what the gospel means and how it should shape you and mold you, then you have to get on your knees and say, Lord, I cannot do this in myself. With all sincerity, however hard I try, I cannot make that happen. Heart Christian growth takes a work of the Spirit. And for that work of the Spirit to take place in you, you need to drain yourself of self-reliance and self-importance. Or put it the other way, you need to be humble. 
I think this should be, and it certainly is, I think, on the forefront of the mind of the elders in the church here, and certainly mine as the pastor, that actually the truth that I hold on to is that it is not possible for me to do for you the thing that I long for you, which is that you might grow in Christ-likeness. To grasp how great this love of God in Christ is for you. I just can't do that for you. It doesn't matter how hard I prepare in my sermons. It doesn't you know, matter how well-run Sundays are. It doesn't matter how great the music is or, or how fantastic the readings are. Any of that, it, that does not work. If God is going to grow us as a Christian, we need to ask him to do it because we're incapable of doing it on our own. That's humility, isn't it? Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I can't nag you to do this for other people. You need to come and do it, don't you? Uh, Turn with me to Titus 2. Let me try and show you how this works in a little bit more detail. So uh, jump forward a few books uh, up to Titus just before Hebrews. You've got Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. Uh, I should just give you a page number. 999 or 998. Titus chapter 2. Look down at verse 11. Let's see how this works in practice. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Now, this is a fascinating passage because it's full of action, isn't it? Training, renouncing, zeal for good works, all those kind of things. But where do they come from? What is it that equips people to do these zealous good works? Well, says Paul, it's the grace of God that has appeared that trains us. How does that work? Well, the grace of God, verse 14, is about the Son of God emptying himself, giving himself up to redeem us and purchase us as his own people. In other words, it is... The extent to which I grasp my unworthiness and helplessness that I become trained to live a useful Christian life in ministry to the glory of God. In other words, it's the more that I know that I didn't know and that I was unable and that Christ did it all that I am equipped to work for Christ's glory. Self-emptying humility leading to the glory of Christ. Finally, A humble person says, it's not just that Jesus is my saviour, he is my everything. Let me read to you uh, from one final passage in Philippians 3. And if you're in impact, you should know this well because you were looking at this on the impact weekend away. So Philippians chapter 3, which is on page 981. Let me read from verse 2. Paul writes again, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, there's loads going on in there, isn't there? It's, it, almost Paul is in kind of some kind of self-counseling session here, isn't he? He's assessing the relative worth of the things that he has. And on the one hand, he has this kind of mental list of all the good things that he has in and of himself, things that he could be proud of, things that might stand for him as righteousness of his own, yeah? And most of them are good things, persecuting church less so, but most of those things are good things. And in the other hand, he has Christ, and then he makes this extraordinary statement, doesn't he? He says that compared to Christ, everything else that he has is rubbish, dung. Now, that's an incredible statement, isn't it? Because Paul is not saying that when it comes to salvation matters, he considers Jesus to be more, a more reliable source than all of these others. It's more than that. Of course, he believes that, but it's more than that, isn't it? He is saying that in terms of their value, Christ is of supreme value. I have emptied myself of everything else that acclaims value and given Christ the supreme value. Anything that I earn for myself, have done myself, achieved myself, thought of myself, has a no value compared to the surpassing glory of belonging to Jesus and being saved and rescued by him. Now, we've really f nearly finished, and we are running out of time, but let's try and put this together uh, with me for a moment. This is the great joy of humility. If you can put these three statements together. This is, uh, there's a joy that cannot be robbed from you. It, it cannot be stolen from you by your weakness or by your sin. Because you get this joy by knowing your sin and admitting your weakness. This is the great joy of humility because it is empty of itself and full of Jesus. That's why being humble, even being humbled, as painful as that is, can also be a road to great joy that you had not known before. Because as you're emptied of yourself and you're full of Christ, you have way more than you ever had before. And you see that just in this passage, don't you, in Philippians 3. It is as Paul empties himself and fills himself full of Christ that his joy grows. Well, let me finish with an Andy Murray quote, not the tennis player, an Andy Murray quote for you. This is what he says. Let us choose to be weak, to be low, to be nothing. Let humility be to us joy and gladness. Let us gladly glory and take pleasure in weakness, in all that can humble us and keep us low. Then the power of Christ will rest upon us. Christ humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. Christ will humble us and keep us humble. Let us heartily consent. Let us trustfully and joyfully accept all that humbles. Then the power of Christ will rest upon us. We shall find 
that the deepest humility is the secret to the truest of happiness, of a joy that nothing can destroy. Let me pray and then we'll come to the Lord's table together. Heavenly Father, we come and confess not just that we have done things wrong, but that we are sinners to such a degree that we are unable to save ourselves. That all that we have to bring to you is broken and ruined with our sin. But thank you that that is a joy for us because Jesus saves sinners. We come and we confess that we are weak, that there is nothing that we are able to achieve by our own efforts that is of eternal value and glory. And so we commit ourselves to you and ask, please, would you, by your spirit, enable us to grasp what great love you have for us, that we might find at the end of our weakness great joy in knowing you. And Lord, we say that the Lord Jesus is not just a solution for our sin, as if our sin was just a kind of problem that needed solving, but that the Lord Jesus is everything to us. He is the great treasure of our hearts. He's the only one worth living for. He's the only one who will be with us in life and death. He's the only one able to fit us for the glories of heaven. He's the one whose presence we will enjoy forever and ever in something which is like marriage but even better than it how we long for that and how we pray even in some trepidation that you might humble us that we might know the joy of knowing Christ with greater richness and we pray in his name amen